so thrilled about this series called Anchor the next few weeks because we're coming back to the core of who we are as Passion City Church. We've been planning to do this series for a while, and if you stick around and become a part of the household of Passion City, you're going to hear this series again somewhere down the line, so just get ready for that. We already shared these messages once before, and even in the earliest of days, we wanted to talk about the anchors of Passion City Church, the theological anchors of our church. And so we talked about radical grace, extravagant worship, and the glory of God. Three major themes of Scripture. They're not the only themes of Scripture, but they're three of the major threads through the entire story of God. And the reason why we want to come back to them often is because they're the anchors that we're putting down in God's Word so that when the tides change and come and go, that Passion City Church will stay on track and our message will stay clear and what we're portraying to the world We'll be clear. And t- today we're starting with radical grace. Obviously, Jesus is the lead story at Passion City Church. We've said that every which way we know how. And so if there was an anchor, the anchor, of course, is in Jesus. So don't, don't think, oh my goodness, shouldn't Jesus be the anchor of the church? He is the anchor of the church. But I want you to look and see what Scripture says about him. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's only said about him of all those who are in history, in John chapter 1, and we've looked at this verse several times, but look at verse 14, John chapter 1. Talking about Jesus, it says, the Word became flesh. So God Almighty entered into time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. The Word, the living, eternal Word of God, who is Jesus, now has taken on flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, so that's where we're getting to the glory of God part that's coming. The glory of the one and only, all caps, one and only, who came from the Father full. Can you just say full with me? Full. That's how Jesus came. Jesus came full, and this is what he came full of, full of two things. What are they? Full of grace and full of truth. That's because Jesus is God Almighty. And God is never pressed into an either-or predicament like, should I be truthful in this situation or should I be graceful in this situation? Whenever Jesus comes into a situation, he comes into it full of truth and full of grace at the same time. It's not like he's, you know, sometimes full of truth and sometimes he's full of grace. He's always, at all times, embodied within himself as the living word of God, the fullness of the truth of who God is and the fullness of the grace that God is exhibits in his very character and exudes all through the story of Scripture. So our lead story is Jesus, and Jesus is full of truth and full of grace, always has been, is now, and always will be. And so we're picking up this theme tonight, the radical grace of God. Why do we have to describe grace as radical? Because what we're talking about tonight is not a band-aid, okay? We're not talking about we all sort of you know, fell off our bike and skinned up our knees really bad and our heavenly daddy set us on the toilet in the bathroom and took a washcloth and wiped off our knees and, and put some Bactine on there. If you came from my ear, I don't even know if they make that stuff anymore. It used to be what you got on everything, save a broken bone. It was all Bactine going on there, maybe Neosporin now. And maybe mom, dad's going to put a Band-Aid on and he's like, oh, all right, everything's going to be good in the world. That's not what happens in our relationship with God through Christ. 
We don't get Band-Aids for all of the, the scrapes and cuts that we get in life. In our relationship with God through Christ, we get a heart transplant because of the grace of God. We, we get a major surgery takes place in us because of the grace of God. And that's why we say it's radical grace. It's not just a little compassion. It's not God seeing you on the street corner, holding out your sign, saying, I need a hand. I'm on hard times. And God rolls down the window and you know puts a happy meal out the window or puts a couple of bucks out the window and then drives on. We're talking about God coming into our lives and literally opening up our chest and taking out a heart of stone and putting into our lives a beating heart of flesh, the heart of Christ. It is a radical thing when grace comes into our lives. That's the gospel that Passion City Church is built on. When we want to be gospel infused, you know what infused means? It means it's in everything. It's in the worship. It's in the songs. It's in the teaching. It's in the mission. It's in the doing. It's in the, it's in the discipleship. It's in our, our culture. It's in our mindset. Everywhere you turn is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know what the gospel is, we talk about it all the time around here. And if I could just say this, we're not apologetic about talking about the gospel. Because we don't want to be one of those churches where people come and say, well, you know what, I, I received the gospel when I was 11 or 12 or 18 or back when I was a kid and I prayed a prayer or put my faith in Jesus. And now I've moved on from that. You don't move on from the gospel. You don't have a heart transplant and then five years later, not still talking about it. Somebody stops, you know, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. I had a heart transplant five years ago and I'm just happy to be here. It, it marks your life. It defines your life. It is a part of the fabric of who you are, you never move away from the gospel. If you've gotten over the gospel, I would offer that you may have never gotten the gospel. Because when you get the gospel, the true gospel, you can't get over that. And it infuses life. It informs your giving. When you give, you don't look at your bank statement, you look at the gospel. When you're obeying God, you don't obey based on whether it's convenient or not. You look at the gospel. When you're deciding what God's calling you to do and you're saying yes or no to God inviting you into his story, you don't say, well, let me check my schedule. Let me consult with my friends. Let me see what's the, you know, the greater story. You look at the gospel and that informs the way you live. And here is the gospel. If you don't know what it is, and maybe you're just coming around church for the first time, we're so glad you're part of this gathering tonight. And here's what we believe that God has done for us. First, the bad news, and then the good news, because the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad, right? And our bad news is really, really bad. That's why our good news is the best news there is. I'm excited. I don't know. I just realized I'm excited. So I, I might just go off on my own with this whole story tonight, because I'm infused right now with a little bit of the gospel. Here four bad news stories of the gospel. Number one, no one is perfect. Wow, we got a low, a low resonating baritone amen over there. That's it. Zero else. No one's perfect. Anyone is disputing that tonight? Anybody want to contend, you know, contest that tonight? No one is perfect. No one would dispute that. It's not up for grabs. The only perfect person is God Almighty himself, and he is holy God, and he's perfect in every single way. And every other person on the planet is less than the holiness of God, and we are imperfect. So that's part of the bad news. Nobody's perfect. Number two, the fallout of not being perfect is that you are separated from God. That's the fallout of not being perfect. It's not just that you need a Band-Aid, it's that you're separated from God. And we're going to see a little bit later, even worse than that, you are contrary to God. 
Because God is righteous and our choices to be less than God's righteousness set us opposed to who he is. So number one, no one's perfect. The fallout of not being perfect is that we're separated from God and even the enemies of God. We're hostile to God. The third part of the gospel is this, and we've said this a whole lot of different ways here, and we're going to keep saying it. I hope you're getting it, is that, say it with me, sin doesn't make us bad. Sin makes us dead. Thank you so much. 11 o'clock did not come strong on that. So thanks for redeeming the house today. Sin doesn't make us bad people. It's way worse than that. Sin makes us spiritually dead. Romans says the wages of sin, the result of sin, the, the payoff of sin is death. Not just one sin or that sin or that sin, but our sinful hearts leave us spiritually dormant and separated from God. The scripture says, Ephesians, when you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. That's how it described us before grace. Not that we were bad people. Our story today isn't how bad are you on a scale of 1 to 10. And we've got a little bit of a, a solution for everybody. If you're a 3, you need a 7. If you're an 8, you only need a 2. If you're a 9, you only need a 1. Congratulations. Maybe you're a 9.9 on a scale of 1 to 10. You just need one-tenth of goodness to drop into your life, and you're going to be fine. That's not our message here. Our message is, is that without Christ, sin left us dead. And that's a problem. And I'll tell you why. It's the fourth part of the gospel, and it is this, that no one can make themselves alive on their own. You didn't get here on your own. You didn't decide to be born. You didn't one day say, you know what, I think I'm going to make myself. You know what, I think I'm going to enter into the world. I think I'm going to be a boy. I'm going to be a girl. I'm going to, I'm going to get my parents to get on board and to make me. You had no say. You didn't know what was going on. You were not a part of the equation until there was you. There was not a you, and then there was a you, and you didn't have anything to do with that decision or that journey until there was you. And then when there was you, you went, wow, I'm here, and I had nothing to do with being alive. My parents, led by the, the grace and the sovereign plan of God, were 100% responsible for me being alive. And in the same way, when sin leaves us by the side of the road, dead and dormant, all of us, the scripture says, the prophet said it this way, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his or her own way. And in Romans 3 says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the payoff is spiritual death. And just like you couldn't do a thing to get life in the first place, you can't do a thing to get life in the second place. And that's bad news. It'd kind of be like if I said, um, you know, sir, do, do you, you're right here in the front row. Uh, Good-looking plaid shirt, by the way. Uh, do you mind standing up just for a second so people can see who I'm talking about? Handsome-looking guy right here. Um, um, you got San Francisco colors on. You sort of got, look, like garnet pants and a black and white top. Why don't you sit down, and uh, we'll go to this guy right next door to you right here, if you don't mind. I just, it's nothing personal. It's just nothing personal. I'm just working through the, you know, through the whole thing. So this is your buddy right here? Yes? Okay, good. Um, yeah, you don't need to get any closer. Just you can back right up to your chair. That's, that's cool. 
but he's on the front row. Let me ask a question, just all kidding aside. How many of you think if you got a running start from the back of the stage, we're going to move the drum riser, and it goes way on back, about 15, 20 feet back there. How many of you think if you got a running start, you could jump into this guy's lap on the front row? How many of you think you could make it from right here to right there? How many of you think so? Well, that's bold. You're getting, we're not going to take volunteers, so you can sit down. Thank you very much, but thank you. Okay, no, I will show of hands because I got distracted by this guy. Think I can make it to the front row? Who doesn't think you can make it to the front row? If you tripped right here, you would hit the guy on the front row. Come on, people. Man alive, this is not a very optimistic-looking group of people, not goal-setters in this crowd, man. I don't know. I don't think so. I think I'm not going to even try it. Look, you could fall off of here and hit the guy on the front row, okay? So that's everybody. Let's see who can make it to the guy on the front row. Okay, let's go back a couple of rows. Let's go to the third row. This young lady right in the middle. You can stay standing. You're doing good. Yeah, right there. Either one of you be fine. I don't, you all just pick between yourselves. Awesome. Go. Okay, so now we've got the third row going. How many of you think if you got a running head start, you could make it to the third row? Yeah, I could probably do Show of hands. Okay, hold them up. I'm just looking. Okay, you're pretty confident you can make it from right here to her with a big running start. Okay, the guys are still in there. The ladies are dropping out on me a little bit right here. That's not what I want to see. I want to see some of the women long jump champions. Okay, so we got, oh, okay, right here. Some people still feeling confident. Okay, now let's go, let's keep going. Let's go to the fifth row back. And uh, so one of you two guys on the fifth row will have to volunteer. Oh, man, that's starting to look a little bit, whew, okay, I'm sizing it up right now. So remember, you still got a lot of room back there to get a full head of steam going. You're coming all the way here, and you're jumping to the fifth row right there. How many of you think there's somebody in the building that could make it to the fifth row? Anybody? Okay, this guy and a few other people. Okay, let's go back a little bit further. So you're five, so we're going to go six, seven, eight, nine. So that's this gentleman right here. Yes, that's you, sir. Awesome. Okay, so that's nine rows back. Who thinks there's anybody here that can make it to the ninth row back? Anybody? Okay, we got one hand over here, one over here. Who thinks there's somebody in Atlanta that could make it to the ninth row back or somebody in America that could make it to the ninth row back? Theoretically. Okay, somebody in the world. There's somebody in the world could make it to the ninth row back. Okay, so let's go really fast one more time. Just show of hands and keep them up until you need to put them down. I think I can make it to this guy right here. See, now you're feeling more confident. You're like, yeah, I can get there. I can make it to her on the third row. Okay, a few of you are feeling good. I can make it to her on the fifth row. No, definitely, that, you're, we're all on board. I can make it back to that guy on the ninth row. Yeah, I saw somebody who's kind of like, I think I might can. Yeah, no, you can't. You, you can't. Just trust me. You're the Olympic gold medal winning men's and women's long jumper if you can make it to this guy back here. But let me ask one more question. How many of you getting a good running start from here could jump to Cleveland? Ohio. Cleveland, Georgia? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> no, Ohio. You see, what happened right there? Y'all, feel free to sit down. Yeah, go, go right ahead. What happened right there? Right there, you went to absurd world. You went, now, I was following you before. Like, okay, six feet, maybe, 12 feet, maybe, 15 feet, 35 feet. What? No one can jump from here 
to Cleveland, Ohio. You didn't even compute it. You didn't even think about it. You didn't go, well, if I train a lot and drop some weight, you know, get a personal instructor, if I start running with one of those rubber band things on my back and pulling weights up a football field, maybe I could jump to Cleveland. I don't know. No, something in your mind said, now you're being ridiculous. And that's what the gospel does. That's where the gospel is born. The gospel is not born in, can you make it to this guy or to her or to her or to him? The gospel is born in, we are spiritually dead because of our sinfulness. God is a holy, righteous God. And getting to God is far crazier than jumping to Ohio. It ain't going to happen. Nobody's jumping to Cleveland. And nobody's getting back to God on their own. That's why we celebrate something called the radical grace of God. Because when we couldn't even conceive of getting to Cleveland, Jesus jumped from Cleveland right into our world and brought the gospel of God right to you and right to me. And we want to dig around for a few minutes tonight in Romans chapter 5. So if you have your scripture, I want you to get, get ready to get in here with me. It, again, if, if scripture's new to you, let me tell you a little bit about Romans, okay? Romans is a treatise written in the New Testament books of scripture, and Romans is written to describe a whole new way to have a relationship with God. And it's like a legal document almost in its complexity and its fullness. And we're dropping down in the middle. We'll, we'll reach back a little bit. We might reach ahead a little bit. But in chapter 5, we really start to see the fullness of the radical grace of God. Knowing that no one's perfect, the fallout of not being perfect is separation from God. Sin doesn't make us bad. Sin makes us dead. And once we are dead, we can't do anything to make ourselves alive again. And so enter into the equation a God who is full of grace and truth. The truth of the matter is, he knows I am holy God and you are not. I know that because I'm full of grace and truth. I, I know that there's no way for you to get to me because I'm full of grace and truth. But I know that I want to get to you because I'm full of grace and truth. Because I love you and I don't want to live without you. And I don't want you to live without me. And so knowing what I know, I've got to move to do what only I can do. And in grace and truth, the gospel starts to unfold. Jesus Christ enters the world and does what none of us can do. It's radical grace for a couple of reasons. I'll tell you a few of them tonight. Number one, it's radical grace because when we were at our worst, Christ gave his best. When we were at our very worst, Christ gave his very best. The middle of Romans chapter 5, beginning, if you will, in verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... You want to underline that word because that word deflates any ideas or notions of religion. It deflates any idea or notion that I'm going to work it out. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to, I'm going to measure up somehow. I'm going to make it up to God. No, the, the, the idea is when we had no ability to do anything, that's when grace started becoming operational 
and an option in our lives. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly, I possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us, his own love for mankind, his love for you. This is how God demonstrates his love for you in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, at just the right time when we were powerless, when when there was no chance of us jumping to Cleveland, that's when Christ died for us. Just at the right time, when there was no way in our minds that we could even entertain the idea of jumping to Cleveland, verse 6 says, Christ died for the ungodly. That's, That's why it's radical. That's the radical idea of it. Christ did not die for good people. He didn't die for people who are doing pretty good. You know, that's the kind of the common answer we get from people when we start to talk about the gospel. Well, I think I'm a pretty good person. Well, congratulations then. You don't need Jesus if you're a pretty good person because the scripture is telling us very clearly right here, Christ died for the ungodly. So let's just take a little survey and, and do a little, you know, two and two kind of thing here. And you don't have to say this unless you believe it, but how do you believe Christ did die for you? Just as I just looking around, you believe Christ died for you. Okay, then everybody with their hand up just admitted that you are ungodly. We, we rarely use that word because we don't want to get around the honesty of our spiritual poverty. And so we kind of like to compare ourselves and, you know, stack ourselves a little bit better than somebody else. But if Christ died for you, the people he died for, he's saying he died for the ungodly, not for the godly, not for the pretty good, not for the sort of religious, not for the, well, I've never done anything really terrible in my life. Christ died for the ungodly because he knew the gospel. Nobody's perfect. The fallout of not being perfect is that we're separated from God and hostile to him. Sin doesn't make you bad. Sin makes you dead. And nobody who's dead can get alive on their own. And nobody can jump from here to Cleveland. And so when we were at our very worst, Christ gave his very best. It's even more than that. If you look down to the next passage, verse 9, it says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, that's Christ's blood, that's his death in our place, how much more, and there's going to be a whole lot of how much more in this chapter, because God's always doing more. <laughs> sin can do what it can do, but God can do more than what sin can do. Sin can take its shots, but God is bigger than the shots that sin can take in our lives. That's why we're celebrating amazing grace, the amazing grace of God tonight. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, check this out, when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son, Jesus. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? See, it wasn't just that we were dead. Our our deadness was willful decisions to say, God's saying this is my path, and we're saying to God, but this is my path. God's saying this is the, the, the plans I have, and we're saying, yeah, but this is the plans I have. God's saying, I want to be central, and we're saying, yeah, I want to be central. And when we do that, we, we may not, you know, stick a manifesto up on heaven's door, but in our hearts, we're setting ourselves opposed to God 
And when we do that, we become hostile toward him. He doesn't become hostile toward us. God isn't hostile toward anybody. God's the one that's moving in grace. God's the one who's jumping from Cleveland. God's the one who's sending his son into the world. Christ is the one saying, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. God's moving in, and we're moving away. God's moving towards, and we're moving against. And when we were at our worst, Christ gave his best. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? That's why you never get over the gospel. And if you don't have that gospel, then you don't really have the gospel. Because if you can get over that, then I don't think maybe you really ever understood it in the first place. That when you were God's enemy, when I was God's enemy, God moved in grace toward me. The second reason it's, it's radical grace is because it opens the doorway from the minute we put our trust in Jesus, into a brand new life with him. From the moment we put our trust in Jesus, the door is flung open into a brand new life with God. Look at this description of who we are beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, and we're going to look at how that happened in a, in a second, a few verses before, but basically it's putting your belief, your faith, your trust in Jesus. Since we have been justified through faith, we have, not we're going to get, isn't that awesome, but we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we have peace? Because we were enemies. Enemies need peace. Bad people just need a formula to get good, but enemies need peace with God. And we've got peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have. Have means we're in possession of, gained, which means it's ours now, access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So the moment we put our trust in Jesus, the door's flung open, we're standing in grace, we have access to this grace, we have a brand new relationship with God, and the future we have, yes, we're headed to heaven, yes, there's a, a destination of completion and perfection out there, but the pathway is a pathway where we are already fully alive, already fully forgiven, already completely in Christ, and the doors fling open, and we are now brand new in Jesus Christ. I'll tell you why that's radical, because every other way on earth, but that way. You study all, you go study every other way on earth, but that way. And if you're here searching tonight, that's awesome. Go search every other way, but this way. And what you will discover is a pathway that promises at the end of the pathway of obedience, of doing the right thing, of not doing the wrong thing, of making sure you step on all the little pegs that you have to step on down through the road of life. And if you're successful enough on your religious journey of spiritual awakening, maybe at the end of the road, the doors will open. Hopefully, at the end of the road of all the religious maneuvering, you'll get to the place, and if you get it all right, the doors open into paradise. But you don't know until you get to the end of the road if you get paradise or not. And the reason why the gospel 
and the grace of God is so radical is that the moment you put your faith in Jesus, the doors open and you get paradise in the very moment that you put your faith in Jesus. Yeah, there's a path. Of course there's a path. Of course there's a process. Of course there's discipleship. Of course there's obedience. Of course there's a life of following God. And yes, there is a future forever with him. But I'm telling you, the moment you put your trust in him, in that moment, the scripture says, we have gained our access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So we're not going down the road going, man, I hope I get all this right. So at the end of the day, the doors open up and voila, it's heaven or nirvana or whatever it is that I'm hoping for on the other end of the equation. No, I got heaven the second I got Jesus, and that's why it's radical grace. The third reason it's radical grace, and I said it once before, but I like saying it again, it's because when we were dead, Christ made us alive. Look at verse 18. In the middle of this passage, Paul gets into this sort of parallel of talking about Adam, the first man, and how when Adam sinned, sin entered into the human race, and it left its mark on all of us so that we came out of the womb with a inclination and a, and a predeterminedness against God. I mean, from the very beginning. You don't have to teach any kid to say no. You don't have to teach any kid to be selfish. You don't have to teach any kid to want their own way. You don't have to teach any kid to fight with their brother or sister. We come equipped with the fallout of sin. And Adam's choice leaves a cloud over humanity. But Paul comes and he says, yeah, one man's disobedience, we see all the result of that. But then he says, check this out, because grace is going to do something more amazing. Through one man's obedience, that's Christ saying yes to the cross and yes to paying the price for us. Through his obedience, many will be made righteous. And so he's painting this parallel story. And look what he says in verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men... So also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings what? Say it with me. That brings life for all men. So we're never going to boast, okay, about what percentage we think we are on the scale of doing good. The question in this house is always going to be a gospel question, and the gospel question is always going to be, are you spiritually alive in Christ? Because you can't be 40% alive, or 20% alive, or 30% alive, or I'm sort of alive, or today I was alive, but tomorrow I'm not sure if I'm going to be alive. You're either alive or you're not alive. You've either moved from death to life, or you haven't moved from death to life. And the gospel says God takes us, not when we were bad, but when we were dead, and through Christ's obedience and Christ's death, he makes us alive in him when we put our faith in Jesus. And so that's our question even tonight. Are you spiritually alive? Not are you a good person? Are you better than your neighbor? Are you more honest than your coworker? The question is, are you spiritually alive in Christ? And if you don't know the answer, then I would point you to the radical grace of God, which did for you the very best when you were at your very worst. When Christ broke in to that pattern of death that had started in the first act of disobedience, and he interrupted that line, and he said, yeah, but I'm going to insert a a valiant act of obedience. And through my act of obedience to God, many, many will come to life and have the righteousness of God.
The fourth reason it's radical grace. Everybody doing okay so far? Yeah, the fourth reason it's radical grace is because wherever sin abounds, and it does abound, grace abounds even more. Look at verse 17. Yeah, somebody should have clapped or shouted or praised God or something, elbowed their neighbor or, I don't know, done something right there. Verse 17, for if by the trespass, remember we're still in this same uh, Jesus-Adam story. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision? Now look how much he's packed into that phrase. So if death's coming by this one man, then how much more? So that's like, you know, God saying, I'm talking about something that is greater on, in, on every level. How much more? And then he adds another qualifier, if, if that wasn't another. Will those who receive God's, what kind of provision? God's so-so provision, God's just barely enough provision, God's, oh, I don't know, I passed out so much provision, I don't know if I have enough provisions for you anymore provision, God's, oh my goodness, I didn't know you'd done all that stuff provision, and I'm going to have to check and see if we can handle somebody like you with the backlog and the catalog of all the stuff you got going on, I don't know if that's, we can cover that kind of provision, no, he said we've got abundant provision, we have an abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness. So that those will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then look down at verse 20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. What does that mean? It means just to to prove the point, the law was given. Keep these ten things. And we're like, oh, I can't do that. Of course you can't because you can't jump to Cleveland. And I'm giving you the law to let you know what I already know, which is you can't jump to Cleveland. And so if you want to know you really can't jump to Cleveland, I'll give you 100 laws. If you really want to know you really, really can't jump to Cleveland, I'll give you 1,000 laws. But whenever law is given, it just emphasizes the fact that we're in deep water. We're in trouble. And so he says the law was given so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, come on, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One tra- translation, I love it, it says, wherever grace abounded, sin superabounded. So it says, hey, I mean, wherever sin abounded, grace superabounded. Sorry about that. we got a lot of aboundings going on up here. But it's kind of like, for me, Sam, sin is like a, a regular dude, and grace is like a superhero. Sin's got a pistol, and grace says, yeah, check this out. <laughs> And, you know, it starts going up and swinging off the buildings and it's got a shield that comes out around this thing and, you know, can press a button and like this magic mobile shows up and he starts flying off through the space and he's got, you know, powers and telepathy and, and the guy's like, oh, check it out. And he's like, yeah, you know, gets the thing, pulls it back and says, here's your pistol, right? How are we doing so far? Bam, bam, bam. You know, it's like, it's not fair. And that's not to say a pistol can't hurt you. It can It's not to say sin can't take you down. It can kill you. But whatever it can do, grace can do more. And whatever it has done, grace can do more. Because wherever sin abounds, grace superabounds. So what does that mean? It means at least two things. It means it doesn't matter what you've done in this moment. Grace can abound to you. You are not going to be so far back in the line that when you get there, they're going to say to you, I wish you'd come earlier, man, because we're out. 
We've covered all the business we can cover today, and we can't cover what you got going on. Now, this death of Christ, this gift of Christ, this perfect sacrifice of Christ superabounds. And whenever you draw near to the holy, holy God, and you turn toward him, that holy, holy God says, I can jump all the way to where you are. My grace can cover what sin has done to you. Wherever sin abounded, hear me, grace abounds even more. And the second thing it means is this, is that you don't have to have a mentality, see? See, maybe just grace or nice little grace kind of means, okay, God's going to give you something and you're going to be okay. You'll, you'll make it. But God is saying, not only can I super abound over what has happened to you, but I will include you in the inner circle of what I'm doing on planet Earth. No matter where you come from and no matter what you have done, my grace is that strong. Like, what are you talking about? I'm talking about Scripture. Do you know how many amazing, righteous, godly, awesome people are in Scripture? Think of a couple. Isaiah, who's a good guy. Didn't get it right every time. Abraham, not too bad. How about David? How about Samson? How about Paul? Let's start with Paul. He wrote this letter. He he wrote this book. Who was Paul? You know who he was. He was a persecutor of Christians. We, We don't think Paul was married, might not have had kids probably, because of that. But what if he did? Kid goes to school. What does your dad do? My dad kills Christians. What does your dad do? Oh, he's a painter. You know what I mean? You know, it's kind of a weird conversation, right? <laughs> Paul spends his life with the authority of Rome trying to shut down this little baby church of Jesus. And he has the authority to persecute and kill Christians. And he does. And he meets Jesus. And he gets truth. And he gets grace. And this persecutor, because of the superabounding grace of God, is turned into a planter of the church that we are a part of today and a proclaimer of the gospel of the radical grace of God. That's who's writing the story. It's not some grand theologian who lived a perfect life and then one day God said, you are so good, you're going to get to write Romans. No, he said, you are so bad, you're going to get to write Romans. You are so far gone, I need you to write Romans because I need people to see that Romans is talking about radical grace here. And if people don't like that, they're not going to like Romans because they're not going to like you. Isn't that awesome? I love how God does that. Let's take a couple more really quickly. Matthew, one of the disciples. You know, there's only 12 of these guys that got chosen to be, be with God. Matthew was one of them. Who is Matthew? Matthew was a tax cheat. And this tax cheat was turned into a man who was invited into the inner circle to be a confidant of Jesus. Even so much that after he was called to follow Jesus, Jesus went to his home, and when Jesus went to Matthew's home, they murmured, all the good people murmured. And they said, what is he doing going to his house? What is he doing hanging out with these tax collectors and these sinners? 
It's like, well, trust me, he can handle it because he's full of truth and full of grace. And he can turn a tax cheat into an inner circle confidant. When Jesus was being crucified, the crucifiers that were there received mercy. They, they insulted him. Think about it. He could have blinked and obliterated them. It says he could have called down angels and cleared the deck. But yet they jeered at him. They mocked him. They, they stuck up sour wine to his mouth when he was parched and dying of thirst. They gambled for his clothes. They, they, they blasphemed against his name. They told him, yeah, you're so great. If you're so great and you're so awesome, why don't you come down off the cross? Same guys that drove the nails in his hands and feet. And in his last act, what did he do? He said, Father, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the very crucifiers of Jesus receive mercy, even so much so that the Gospels record that one of them who had just driven the nails in his hands and his feet when he died said of him, surely this man must be the Son of God. How did he know that? It could have been the grace that it infused his death even in the very last moment and where sin was abounding, grace was abounding even more. So that at the foot of a cross, a crucifier worshiped Jesus Christ. It's radical grace because dead beat death bed convicts can become that day inhabitants of paradise. The guy hanging on Jesus, right and left, criminals, one cursing but one asking for mercy. And in his last breath, when he said, remember me when you come in your kingdom, Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. There was a story we told a few weeks ago about this prodigal father, this prodigal son, son took the money and he ran off into a far country and he embarrassed the family and he partied it up until everything ran out and the famine came and now he's feeding the pigs and he comes to himself and he's going to limp his way home with his little apology note in hand. And the father runs out and what does grace do? It takes a disgraced, sullied son and it turns him into a celebrated, party-worthy heir. Peter, this valiant warrior, was not a promise keeper. He was a promise breaker. And Peter was a Christ denier. And even though he was a promise breaker and a Christ denier, he was turned into the lead shepherd of the early church and a people healer. And then there was little Zacchaeus. Remember him? He was so little he couldn't even see the gospel. He couldn't even, he couldn't even see what was going on. He couldn't get over the people when Jesus was coming by. And so what did he do? You remember, all of a sudden, you like me, you just got the picture of your Sunday school teacher in your mind, didn't you? 
Zacchaeus goes up in this tree, and he's hanging on for dear life in this tree so he can get a glimpse of Jesus. And when Jesus is coming down the road, there's people everywhere. You know they're lined on the roads, or else he wouldn't have had to go up the tree. And I'm sure a lot of them were thinking, I know he's going to notice me when he comes by because look at my robe, and look how righteous I am, and look how awesome I am, and he's going to know I'm one of the leaders and one of the good people, and he's going to look over at me and give the little nod and say, hello, brother, and extend the right hand of Christian fellowship to me, and we're going to do the secret Jesus handshake, and he's going to say, I'm going to come to your house, and we're going to break bread together and study the Torah together, you and me. We're going to have fellowship today. And he's not looking at any of these people, but he catches Zacchaeus in the tree, and he says, hey, Zacchaeus, you need to get out of the tree, man, because I'm coming to your house. And a murmur went through the people. Because we know enough about Zacchaeus from the context of the story that he had ripped people off. Jesus didn't pick the nicest guy in town to go to his house. He picked a guy that everybody knew was a crook and said, I'm coming to your house. He didn't say, if you get it right, I'll come to your house. If you will turn right now, I'll come to your house. He said, no, I'm coming to your house, full of grace and full of truth. Because when you're full of grace and truth, you can go anywhere. And so he goes to Zacchaeus' house, and they sit down together. And now Zacchaeus is eyeball to eyeball with full of truth and full of grace. And as he's dealing with full of truth and full of grace, he knows instantaneously that he is loved by God, accepted by God. He has a place with God. By all means, the Son of God is sitting in his house for crying out loud. He is loved by God and valued by God, but he's also got this truth thing going on. And before the meal's over, he says, hey, anything I've done wrong, I'm going to make it right. And anything I've stolen from anybody, I'm going to pay him back in multiples of what I've taken before. My life's going to change because of my encounter with you right now. And Zacchaeus is in the story. This book and our history are the story of people who were at their worst when Jesus entered into the picture full of grace and truth. And he takes us at our worst and he lifts us up. No matter what sin has done to us, grace can do more for us. And he says, not only are you forgiven, Matthew tax cheat, would you like to be one of the 12 guys that come in the inner circle? Peter, not only did you deny me when I'm at my darkest hour, but I'm going to forgive you, and I'm not just going to let you sort of tag along. I'm going to let you be the the, the shepherd who leads this church on. And that's what he's saying to you and me tonight. Whatever sin is done to you, grace can do more for you. And there is a place with God for you. And the beauty is that the church is full of people whose story is, I don't deserve to be here, but by the grace of God, grace super abounded to me. And I am not only at church, I am the church, and I am a part of leading God's kingdom efforts on earth. When I was at my worst, Jesus did his best. So a couple more things really quickly. Who gets this grace of God? Who gets it? How do you get this radical grace? You get it by believing. Romans 1, 16, a passage we all know. But look what it says. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. For the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. First to the insiders who 
kind of saw the whole thing coming. And secondly, to those of us who didn't even have a clue that we needed the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Christ has come. Christ has paid the price. Christ has died the death. Christ was raised to life. I'm not ashamed of that gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. For who? For, for anybody? No. For all who believe. To everyone who believes. That's how we access this incredible life that comes from Jesus. And it's not just for heaven, but it's for life. It's our power. It's our sustainability every day we're on the planet. You know, when you get this gospel and you understand this, when you understand this verse we read about being saved by his life and, and seeing the fullness of that, I think it's verse 10 of chapter 5 we read, For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? What does that mean? It means that we don't just look back on our salvation moment, but, but for the same power of God that saved us, we trust in that power to keep saving us every day of our lives. The same power that brought us back from the dead is the power we trust to get us through Monday. Because, see, when you become alive in Christ, the mountains don't go away, the difficulties don't go away, the jumps to Cleveland don't go away. And there are people here today that would say, I know I have life in Jesus, and I know that that door's been opened, and I know I have a relationship with him that's going to take me all the way to heaven. But you still have something going on today that requires you to jump to Cleveland. Maybe for you, some litigation or some relational breakdown, or maybe someone in your family is off far away on the, on the fringes of life, and you're powerless to change it. Maybe your, your parents are going crazy, and you're powerless to change it. Maybe there's some internal turmoil going on inside of you, and you know you're powerless to change it. So what do we do? We wake up, and we say, God, I want to put my hope in your grace today. The same grace that brought me to life has to sustain me in life. The same grace that raised me from the dead has to help me bridge the gap that I can't bridge today. So we never get over the gospel of grace. Because every single day we trust that gospel of grace, that life of Christ to save us every single day. We trust his power to do what we can't do. I just say a hearty amen to that. Praise God for the power of radical grace that can meet us where we are and restore us to the place we only dreamed we could be. You know, when we get down to the end of this message, and there's always a little bit, ten, little bit of tension in the room, and that's okay. Uh, that tension is the, what you get inside the church, and it's a, probably a pretty good tension, actually. It's that thing, you know, where like if you go outside the church and share what we just shared, you get a whole lot of, wow, you're kidding me, amazing. I didn't know that. I, I thought church was for people that were good. I thought church was for all the perfect people. I thought church was where you went if you belonged there. I didn't know that God came to you when you couldn't get to him. This is really good news to me. And if you just walk out into culture and start talking about the radical grace of God, you get a lot of people looking back at you with wide eyes going, wow, wow, I could use some of that. Wow, I, I need some of that. But when you come inside the church and you start talking about radical grace of God, you get a lot of what? You get a lot of butts. You're like, oh, that's a good message, Louie, but you got to finish it before you end today. You can't just leave it hanging right there because it's not just all God does all this for us and God comes and restores us and God jumps from Cleveland all the way to where we are and God takes us and forgives us and cleanses us. You got to put the end of the story on there, right? And I just want to say there is an end of the story on here. 
There is a but at the end of this story, and the but at the end of this story that everybody wants to ask, and somebody's feeling it right now, so I'm just going to say it for all of us. Somebody wants to say, well, you know what? I know grace is amazing, and I know God loves us, and I know God pours out all this favor and mercy on us, but you know what? We can't just live our lives and abuse the grace of God. See there? You got an amen for that, and I'm with you. We always want to get that on the end, and it is on the end. Please hear that. It is on the end. No one who really fully understands the grace of God has a mindset that says, I now want to go out and abuse the grace of God by living however I want to live. No one who really understands that God came from heaven to earth to bring his righteousness to us when we could not help ourselves says, wow, knowing that he did that and can do that, I'm just going to go live however I want to in this world. And I'll always just count on that grace of God to carry me home. That is just an indication that we didn't get the grace of God in the first place. Because when you get a heart transplant, everything starts to change inside of you. And even Paul gets that. So that at the end of chapter 5, and you don't have to look at it, after all this amazing explosion of grace, the very next sentence is this. In chapter 6, check it out. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You see the argument? If when I sin, grace is even greater, no matter how far I fall, grace can lift me back up. No matter what sin can do to me, grace can do even more to me. So, hey, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to just show off the power of grace by running as far as I can into sin. And I'm just going to wreck my life just to make the point that God's grace is even bigger than the mess I can make out of my life. That sounds like a good equation, doesn't it? It just keeps showing off the grace of God. Should we keep on sinning so that grace will increase and increase and increase and superabound and superabound? And Paul answers... And he's, he almost uses, um, you know, a bad word here. He comes as strong as he can in the Greek language without using a curse word. And he says, in Greek, it's meganoito, but in English, it's by no means, exclamation point. Some translations, may it never be. What he's saying is 1,000 times to the 1,000 times, no. Of course we're not going to do that. Because grace, when it lands on us and it superabounds in us and it does more in us and for us than what sin did to us, we understand there's power there. And that power is there to propel us to a whole new way of life. Amen? So there's your butt. But now let's come back and let's just sit. In this truth, that no matter who you are or what you have done or how far you have fallen or how greatly you have disappointed yourself, God's grace is more than enough right here and right now for you. Right here and right now to meet you where you are and to completely overwhelm your debt and to cancel out all the sin and all the shame of whatever sin has done to you or whatever through sin you have done 
to yourself or to others and to God. There's enough, more than enough, abundance of grace right now in Jesus for you. So that if your eyes were to be opened and you really saw it for what it is, you could walk out of this building right now free from condemnation, free from guilt, free from shame, completely restored and invited into God's inner circle of people he uses to build his kingdom on planet earth. There is a place for you in the kingdom building work of Jesus. Right now and right here. That's what it means to you and to me. What does it mean through you and to me and through me? It just simply means a radical change of lifestyle. And yeah, the, the after the but is a radical change of lifestyle, but I'm talking about something in the ocean of grace. Here's what it is. It means that you and I endeavor by the grace and power of God, please hear this, to live our lives dishing out to other people what God has dished so graciously to us. Oh, you're my enemy. Wow. Instead of fighting you, which I could do because you're my enemy, I'm as much as I can by the power of God going to extend grace to you because that's what God did to me when I was his enemy. Oh, you're at your worst? Well, I'm going to try to bring God's best because that's what God did to me when I was at my worst. Christ gave his best. And it's amazing to me how we can misfire, okay, on our true understanding of grace by thinking, oh, I've got it, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, I'm blah, 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 but yet we are so unwilling to forgive, so unwilling to extend mercy, so unwilling to extend grace, we put people through the ringer and through the fire, and then maybe we forgive. And I wonder if that's not just a mirror of the fact that we really haven't ever fully fallen into the ocean of the radical grace of God so that by the power of God our first thought is I want to be gracious I want to be kind I want to be forgiving oh I'm going to have to live in truth you can't throw truth away because Jesus is full of both but in truth I want to speak the truth in love and I want to try to respond truthfully in grace because that's what's been given to me